0: If you would, please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3. I'm going to read for you the whole chapter, so you should have time to catch up should you need it. If you're looking for 1 Samuel, just open your Bible and go just a few books in. If you get to Kings, Chronicles, Psalms, you've gone too far. Hang a left. Go back. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 3. We're continuing our series together through the book of 1 Samuel. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days, there was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was laying down in his own place. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Let's pray together. Lord, you have given us your word. Help us to hear it clearly and to respond. God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, I pray that through your Holy Spirit you would give me clarity of mind, conviction of heart, and concision of speech to declare the truth of God's word to God's people. We ask this in your name. Amen. I'm tethered to the pulpit, all right? I'm a wanderer, but I'm not going to wander. Throughout his ministry and his career as a civil rights activist, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. often preached a sermon entitled, A Knock at Midnight. Now, we just celebrated uh, by taking... day off from school, some of us, and the bank's closing, and uh, some of your jobs closing, this great American hero, Dr. Martin Luther King, he, he preached this sermon, A Knock at Midnight. In the sermon, he mused on the parable in Luke 11, where the man is interrupted by his hungry and needy friend in the middle of the night. In the parable, Dr. King saw the midnight hour as a metaphor for the current state of the world. At the end of his powerful introduction, the preacher stated this. We find ourselves today standing in the midst of a threefold midnight. It's midnight in the social order, it's midnight in the psychological order, and it's midnight in the moral order. Dr. King's diagnosis of the moral condition of our world still resonates today. I want to read you a quick excerpt of his diagnosis of midnight in the, in the moral order. Here's what the preacher said. Midnight is a time when all colors lose their distinctiveness and become merely a dirty shade of gray. In so many instances, moral principles have lost their distinctiveness. Nothing is absolutely right or absolutely wrong for modern man. It's just a matter of what the majority of people are doing. For most people, right and wrong are merely relative to their own likes and dislikes and the customs of their particular community. We have unconsciously taken Einstein's theory of relativity and applied it to the moral and ethical realm. He continues. Midnight is a time when everybody is desperately seeking to avoid getting caught. It is the hour when hardly anybody is concerned about obeying the Ten Commandments. Everybody is concerned about obeying the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get caught. According to the ethic of midnight, the only sin is to get caught and the only real virtue is to get by. It's all right to lie, but do it with real finesse. It's all right to steal, but be a dignified stealer so that if you are caught, it becomes embezzlement rather than robbery. It's all right even to hate, but dress your hate up in the garments of love and make it appear that you are loving when you're actually hating. So in the place of the Darwinian survival of the fittest, many have substituted a philosophy of the survival of the slickest. This has led to a tragic breakdown of moral standards And so the midnight of moral degradation grows deeper and deeper. But, as in the parable, so in our world today, the deep darkness of the midnight is interrupted by the sound of a knock. Does that sound accurate today? The sermon's some 50 years old, but I think we could still apply it. It was certainly midnight in Israel where we open our text. Uh, If you're a note taker, here's how we're going to trace this. We're going to look at the theme of light and darkness. I'm going to give you four truths on the theme of spiritual darkness. In our text this morning, it is past midnight. It's beyond midnight in Israel, both literally and figuratively. We take up our story in the darkest hours of the night, just before the dawn. And we will see in our text that Israel has descended into one of its darkest hours. Sin has corrupted the nation as well as the priesthood and has filled the land with darkness. It is dark and quiet in Israel. But God is about to interrupt the darkness in a surprising way in our text this morning. Why is it so dark in Israel, we ask? The answer is sin. The problem is sin. And here's point one for your note takers. Sin Brings darkness. Sin brings darkness. Look back with me at the beginning of our text in verses one and two of chapter three. The context here gives us some insight into the spiritual condition of Israel. There is a vacuum of godly leadership in Israel at the time of this text. You can hear a lot more about that if you listen to last week's tremendous sermon from Pastor Jake called When Leaders Throw Their Weight Around. You can find that on our website or the Church Center app. There's a vacuum of godly spiritual leadership in the land of Israel. This is illustrated or even explained by the last word in the book of Judges, which comes shortly before 1 Samuel. Here's how the book ends. On a very depressing note, listen. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's not good. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We see this in the wickedness of the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. We learned about them last week. The priests abused the people of God. They interrupted the worship of God. They profaned God's sacrifices. If you need a refresher, just look back at chapter two. It tells the story of the absolute evil and wickedness of the sons of Eli who were supposed to be godly spiritual leaders for the nation Yet they abused God's people. They threw their weight around. We see it also in the weakness of their father, Eli. You might say, well, he, tr- he did warn them. And that's true. He did warn them in chapter 2, verses 20 through, 22 through 26. But their wicked behavior continued. So his bark had no bite, so to speak. He warned them, but he did not restrain them. He proved himself to be an absent spiritual father and he even began to prove himself as a spiritual dolt in the first chapter of 1 Samuel. Do you remember when Hannah was praying in the temple and he assumed that she was drunk? How foreign must that concept have been to the priest to see someone praying fervently in the spirit and he assumes that she's drunk? Things aren't good in the priesthood. Things aren't going well in Israel. It's dark and it's quiet. And judgment was on its way. Pastor Jake told us, and he was right, as usual, that Hannah's prayer in chapter 2 sort of sets the stage for what happens throughout the book of 1 Samuel. She prays this in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. We're going to see in our text this morning that the God of reversal, as promised in chapter 2, is about to act. And he's about to act against the wicked priesthood and the house of Eli. We should know this already because an unnamed prophet came at the end of chapter 2 and warned of God's judgment. So we, we, the stage is set here. We know from the context that the spiritual condition of Israel is in a bad way. Things are bad, it's dark, it's quiet. But we're also going to see it in the literary details of this story. Look with me at verse 1. The literary details paint a picture of Israel's spiritual condition. See, Israel had descended into darkness, and as a result, God has gone quiet. Verse 1, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. That's your first sign. Next, there was no frequent vision. We even see it with Eli, his, his very physical um, Even his body illustrated his spiritual reality. At that time, Eli, his eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see. Are you seeing that it's a dark place here in Israel? And there's even a picture in verse 3, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. We see this picture of a flickering lamp in the temple. We'll get to that more in a second. But I I just want to pause and ask the question, why is it dark and silent in Israel? The answer is because of sin. Sin. Sin gets in the way of your relationship with a holy God. Sin gets in the way of your relationship with a holy God. Sin clouds our spiritual vision and stops up our spiritual ears. We see this so clearly in the sons of Eli, don't we? God would not reveal himself to the wicked priests. Why? Chapter 2, verse 12, they did not know the Lord. Did they know his word? I would think so. I would think they knew at least somewhat of their job description as priests from the scriptures. But did they know him? The text is clear. No, they knew his word, but continually rejected it. And we're going to see this theme throughout the book of 1 Samuel. To reject God's word is to reject God. To reject God's word is to reject God himself. You might find yourself in spiritual darkness. In a room this size with this many people, I assume that there's at least someone here who finds him or herself in spiritual darkness. Sin has so invaded your heart and your life that you cannot see things clearly. You cannot hear things clearly. The word of the Lord falls on deaf ears and a hard heart. I had a friend one time who would describe the conversion experience, or at least the beginnings of it, as God turning the lights on in someone's heart. Some of you need God to turn the lights on in your heart. Some of you need, all of us need God to reveal himself to you, to us. So let me ask you the question before I go any further. Do you know the Lord? You can settle that today. Has God revealed his word to you? Or are you floundering in spiritual darkness? Here's your antidote if you find yourself in that place. Ask God to reveal himself to you and to remove your sin. That's your only hope. Because sin separates us from a holy God. Maybe you know him. Maybe you do belong to the king of Israel and to our king. Maybe you do, but you find yourself distant from the lord today maybe you feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling and just bouncing right back down on top of you maybe you read god's word and you can't get it at all it's just not speaking to you you can't hear the lord for anything maybe you find yourself in that place today let me ask the question has sin come between you and your god Is there some darling sin that you're loving more than the one who drives out sin? Has God gone silent in your life? It's the same antidote. Ask God to reveal himself to you and to remove your sin. Despite the desperate situation in Israel, we're actually going to see some glimpses of hope. This is going about how I hoped it would. I want it to feel kind of dark and bleak. But light is coming. Light is coming. Look with me at verse three. There are glimpses of hope. God has not abandoned his people. Here's truth number two about spiritual darkness. God never leaves his people alone in the dark. God never leaves his people alone in the dark. Let's read verse 3 together. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. I actually see here three encouragements. Just in that quick, short little verse. Number one, the lamp of God was still burning. Hey, that's good news. The lamp of God was still burning. This detail actually does tell us the time of night or at least roughly. See, it was the priest's job to keep the lamp burning from sundown to sun up. The lamp of God in the temple of God or the tabernacle was to be lit all night long. And we see here that the lamp of God was still burning. It it is to say that it's getting close to the time where the lamp would go out. So I think we see in our text here a flickering light in the tabernacle. Can you see it in your imagination? The light may be flickering, but the darkness has not overcome it. This detail gives us a little glimpse of hope that God has not abandoned his people. The light's still on in the sanctuary. Number two, the ark of God was still present. Did you see it? Where the ark of God was. The ark signified God's special presence among his people. We're going to see that presence abused and and even manipulated further on in the book of 1 Samuel. But let's take some encouragement here that the ark of God signified his special presence among Israel. This reminds us of God's covenant commitment to his people. See, this is still good news. Um, On the ark was the throne of God. I think, now this is Andrew talking, I think that that's where that voice in the story emanated from. The the seat, the mercy seat of God. I think that's where the voice came from. But in either case, we can take some encouragement that God still sits on his throne in Israel. And let me apply this to you today. God still sits on his throne in the heavens. He's still in charge. He's not surprised or concerned. He's not worried about the state of affairs. It might be midnight here, but God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And he's not worried, brothers and sisters. The light's still burning. The throne is still there. The word of God even is inside of the ark. What's inside of the ark? Moses' tablets, right? Right? The word of God is still present among the people of God. The throne of God was nearby. The word of God was nearby. These are encouragements we can glean just from verse 3. And also look with me. The servant of God ministered and rested in his presence. Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord. An unlikely servant, yes, but a faithful one. This young boy... Tradition, uh, according to Josephus later on, tradition places him at about 12 years old. That seems right to me. I might get into that a little bit more later. But the closest person to the presence of the living God was a young boy. And this young boy was considered faithful throughout this narrative in chapters 2 and 3. How is he described here? He's lying down in the presence or in the temple of the Lord. Look at verse 1. The boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. That's the third time in this narrative that Samuel is described this way, as ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Notice that he's serving where those wicked priests are supposed to be. He's the foil throughout this story to the rightful priests who are abusing their office and God's people. This innocent, faithful boy who's been offered to the Lord is the anti-priests. He's the foil to the people that are supposed to be there. Throughout the story, you see his trajectory is opposite of Eli's sons. They grow in wickedness apart from God's presence. He grows in moral stature and respect in God's presence. When we read about Samuel in this way, especially in chapter 2, verse 26. Now the, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. We are meant to see another faithful boy in the text. Why do I say that? Because in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, those exact words are used to describe another young boy serving in the temple. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I hope that we realize how blessed we are to live at the time that we live. We don't have to do a lot of guessing when it comes to our Bible study. We see the fulfillment. It's already happened. That's amazing. I was in seminary um, for a really long time. And in one of my classes, my mentor is Dr. Landon Dowden, tremendous preacher, super tough professor, um, but he, he was talking about a book that we were reading as a class, and the author of this book had argued that you're not supposed to read the Old Testament with the New Testament in mind. We should just read it like the Jews did, and, and don't try to skip ahead in the story. Take it on its own. And Landon had a very simple, but I think very effective rebuke to that point of view. He said, that's all well and good, but we'd still be Jews. And I agree. We're so blessed. We have the whole Bible. So if you've read it, and I pray that you have, if you need help with that, icbcmw.org Bible reading. We have some resources available for you. You read the Bible and you're familiar with its story, you'll, alarm bells will start to go off and you'll say, hey, this boy reminds me of another boy that's coming. Samuel is pictured as a faithful son serving in the presence of the Lord. This is a type of Christ. Jesus being the faithful mediator and prophet. This story is about Samuel and Israel, but really it's about Jesus. See, we have this problem in our culture. Uh, It's a hero complex we have. All of us have it. It's instilled in us at a very early age, probably from our movies and TV that we love so much. I'm guilty too, okay? Where we think that we're the star of every story. Brothers and sisters, if you're the star of the Bible story, That's a sad and depressing book. Do you know why? Because you fail. And because I fail. And I need someone else to be the star of my story. Or I am hopeless. I know what's in here. I need someone else to be the star of the story. And this story, it isn't about you. We can learn things from it and we will. Jesus is the star of this story. Let's continue. We'll see more of this later. I want to encourage you with this, though, by way of application. Even in seasons of spiritual darkness, God always maintains a remnant of his people. You can test that. Feel free. I'm very confident that that's true. You can read the entire Old Testament, the entire New Testament, and you will never find a time when God did not have and maintain a people for himself. They might seem small. I mean, Elijah thought he was the only one. And he was wrong. There was hundreds more. It might seem hopeless when Israel is taken into Babylon, but there's still a faithful remnant. God always maintains a people for himself, which is to say, God never leaves his people alone, even in the darkest moments. I hope that you can be encouraged by that. Even in your darkest night, the lamp of God still burns. You are not forgotten. You're not alone. Even, uh, sorry, if you're not among his covenant people, let me issue a, a warning. You may not realize it, but you are living in spiritual darkness. What's the answer? Step into the light by faith in Jesus, the true faithful son. Ask him to reveal his word to you and to remove your sin. God does not leave us alone in darkness. He gives his word to drive it out. Number three, the third truth this morning, God's word drives out darkness. Now we get into the sort of story part of the text. Likely you're familiar with this. God calls Samuel four times. The first three times he thinks that it's Eli talking to him. But I want to urge you to keep the point of the story in view. I've heard this text preached so many times, and typically here's what happens in the sermon. Typically, we see some tangential application point that's made the moral of the story or the point of the story. You might hear this text preached and, and hear the big focus being listen to and obey God's voice. And I would say, yes, but you're not Samuel. You'll likely hear sermons like this. God uses young people. Yes, he does. But that's not why the story is in the Bible. You might hear sermons about the dangers of bad parenting and let me shout hallelujah to the rooftops. Listen, restrain the sin of your children. But the point Listen, when when there's a section of scripture where God speaks, that's the point. So what does God say? What does he say in this story? What he's going to do here is he's going to call a prophet. Three times God spoke to the boy, three times he obeyed, but he didn't understand. In verse 7, we see that he, he, didn't yet, he didn't understand because he didn't yet know how to recognize the voice of God. Just like the sons of Eli, he doesn't yet know the Lord, but God's about to reveal himself to him, and he will respond, making him the anti-sons of Eli. Are you with me? The point of this story is that God's word delivered through God's prophet drives out darkness and brings light to God's people. Let me say that again. The point of this story, God's word delivered through God's prophet drives out darkness and brings light to God's people. Eli went to his mentor, his spiritual father, for guidance. Twice Eli missed it. I would argue that's a sign of his spiritual blindness. On the fourth time, the scene changes. Notice with me. The scene changes. Look at verse 10. The Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Two quick notes. First, the scene changed. It's not only the voice of the Lord. What, how did God act here? The Lord came and stood. This is likely what Scholars call an auditory vision. And what it's supposed to tell us is the word came nearer to Samuel. It came into his room. And also significantly, the Lord uses his name twice. It's the only time he does that. Samuel! Samuel! This reminds the reader of when God called three other people in the Old Testament. Abraham, jacob and moses all three of them god came and declared their name twice we are to see that this is a prophetic call now there are some elements that are normal among a prophetic call that are absent here one of which is a very specific command to go and do something the other is an admission of unworthiness and for the second i would just say samuel's probably 12 years old I bet he feels plenty unworthy. But we're supposed to see here that God calls a prophet. The result in verses 19 through 4-1 are going to show that. So what does God say through this prophet? The Lord issues a message of judgment through the prophet. The Lord comes and says, I'm about to do a new thing in Israel. The new thing that the Lord promises will cause everyone's ears to tingle. I like that when we see that phrase used in the old testament it's used three times in each time god promises a radical judgment we see it in second kings we see it in jeremiah the lord is going to do something so scandalous so outrageous in israel that people's ears are going to tingle it's going to be the news in the streets The Lord here promises nothing short of a national revolution. God is about to overthrow Eli's house. God is about to change the way he relates to his people. This is a pivotal text in the history of the Old Testament. See, Samuel is the last judge in Israel. And we'll see later in the story, he's going to become the first national prophet in Israel since Moses. Samuel is significant. The age of the judges is over. The age of the national prophets begin with Samuel. And even note this, the age of kings is about to begin with Samuel's appointments of Saul and David later in our book. More on that later. The prophet hears a word of judgment from the Lord. I'm about to overthrow Eli's house. All the things that were promised in chapter 2 are about to come true. A revolution is on its way. And you know that boy was scared, right? He's been raised by this priest. And God woke him up in the middle of the night. And he declares a message of judgment and even doom on Eli's sons. They're going to die. Do you think he slept after that? I doubt it. I doubt it. Imagine Samuel's fear and even marvel at his obedience. Eli calls him in the morning and says, so what did God say? I think Eli knew what God said or what he was going to say because he was just warned. So, so what did God say? And you know, Eli's stammering. Uh, 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 Don't hold it back from me, son. Tell me what he said. The Bible says that that Samuel told him. The house of Eli will not be forgiven of their sins. 14. Their sins shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Why? Isn't God a God of mercy? Yes, of course he is. And actually in the law, this is made clear. There's actually provision in the law for the sins of the priests. The priests can definitely be forgiven unless they sin with a high hand, is what Numbers says. Unless they deliberately Profane the sacrifices of the living God. Then the very thing that they profaned, God will not accept it to forgive their sin. You with me? It's hopeless for Eli's sons. Why? Because they defied the living God, they abused God's people. And they blasphemed against themselves. And these are the leaders. It is dark in Israel. But what God's word does, it drives out darkness. Do you see it here? What's God doing through his word? He's getting rid of those wicked priests. Their time is over. God's got a new way of doing things. Out with the old, so to speak, and with the new. Of course, we respect Eli's acceptance. He's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Eli knows what we know, that the word of the Lord will stand. Isaiah 14, 27 says it this way. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? No one. When God speaks... It happens. God's word drives out darkness. God judges evil in this text with his word. God's word drives out darkness. That was true in Eden. It's true in Israel. And it's true today. Only light can defeat or drive out darkness. That leads us to number four. God's word brings light and life. It's not all bad news for Israel in this text. Let's read these last several verses together, starting in verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, we pause here. um, That is the traditional limits north to south of the nation of Israel. It's It's a way of saying the whole country. All Israel knew that Samuel was established as a prophet Of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So God, with his word, has driven out the wickedness, the darkness of the household of Eli, and God's word is bringing light into the nation of Israel. This is really good news. Light begins to dawn on Israel. Why? Because the word of the Lord came through God's prophet to God's people. Remember verse 1 there was no frequent vision, the word of the Lord was rare. That's no longer the case with Samuel. The word of the Lord was common. God spoke through a faithful prophet to his people. God is no longer silent, He has begun to speak. I once heard a story of a three-year-old boy who was visiting some relatives. At night, his room was dark, and he was crying. Auntie, the boy cried, talk to me. I'm afraid because it's so dark. His aunt answered him from another room, what good would that do? You can't see me. That doesn't matter, replied the child. When you talk, it gets light. I'm worried you're not hearing me this morning. Help me, Holy Ghost. When God talks, it gets light. Amen. When God talks to Israel, things change. Midnight is giving way to daybreak. Times are changing. God's got something new he's doing. And hear me, the the night might be dark here where we stand and where we sit, but it only takes the word of God to pierce the darkness and bring light. Samuel here fulfills his calling. He was raised as a priest and he serves some priestly functions like lighting the lamp, like opening the door to the sanctuary. He's raised as a priest. He even offers sacrifices later in the book. And here in our text, he's confirmed as a prophet, as the prophet to Israel. And he will go on to establish the first two kings, including the best one until Jesus. So Samuel comes really close to fulfilling what theologians call the trifold office. Priest, prophet, and king. Is he all three? No. Is he a priest? Sort of. Is he a prophet? Absolutely. Is he a king? No. We think similarly of Moses. Was he a priest? No. He did priestly things. He represented God to man and man to God. Was he a prophet? Yes. Was he a king? Technically, no. But he did lead God's people. We see it later with David. Was he a priest? No, but he did enjoy access like no one else. Was he a prophet? Yes. I mean, he wrote like half the book of Psalms. Was he a king? Oh, the best one until Jesus. But here's the reality. This story shows us Samuel wasn't quite enough. David wasn't quite enough. Moses wasn't quite enough. We need all three. We need the prophet to speak God's word to God's people. We need the priest to represent us to a holy God and a holy God to sinful man. And we need a king to rule over us with a kind hand. We need all three. Prophet, priest, king. Here in this story, we see that light began to dawn on israel and if you fast forward several hundred years you'll come up on another midnight another midnight where the canon of the old testament it's closed god's not speaking through prophets anymore he's been silent for some 400 years why Because Israel has rejected the word of the Lord and thereby rejected the Lord himself. So we see another midnight, don't we? And then at night, some shepherds are hanging out in a field. And angels appear in the sky and they say, oh, the king is coming. Oh, rejoice. The blessed one is on his way. And we see the king who's born in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. And this king starts out as a little boy. And when he's, I don't know, roughly 12 years old, he serves in the temple of God. In fact, his parents left him. They didn't even know he was not there. That's every parent's nightmare, right? They went home and they're like, where's Jesus? And they go back to the temple and they find him. He said, didn't you know I would be in my father's house ministering to the Lord? At the end of that chapter, the author says that that boy grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and man. I have a story to tell you and it's about light invading the darkness through an anointed one. That boy grew up and his cousin testified about him in John chapter one. He said this boy would bring light into a dark world. That boy grew in the presence of God. And one day, a couple of decades later, he stands in front of the crowd and he says, I am the light of the world. You don't have to walk in darkness. You can walk in light if you know me. The story, it's all about Jesus. Jesus fulfills this trifold office, doesn't he? Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1? <clears throat> when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, did Apollos write Hebrews? This is how the author opens his letter. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see that in Jesus, God speaks his best and fullest word to us. In Jesus, God mediates between a holy God and a sinful man. And Jesus already does and always will rule over his people for eternity. Hear me, the true and better Samuel speaks light into our darkness. We picked up our story at midnight. It was dark and quiet in Israel. Sin had gained supremacy over an entire nation. Wickedness corrupted Israel's spiritual leadership. But God interrupted the darkness with his word. Light flooded into the dark spaces of a nation when God began to speak through his prophet to his people. And when God talks, it gets light. It's midnight now. In these last days, we, like Israel and Samuel's time, find ourselves in a moment of profound spiritual darkness. Don't we? John 3.19 tells the truth about our world. The people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Spiritual leaders love to throw their weight around. It is dark in America. It's midnight in the world. What is the answer To this spiritual darkness? Samuel's story tells us the answer is to shine the light of the Word of God into the darkness. God has spoken to his people Beloved, have no fear. The lamp of God is still burning. You are not forgotten. God has already provided his answer to the darkness that has settled all around us. He has spoken to us. You're probably holding it in your lap. He has spoken to us. He has given us his word. He has made his word manifest in the person of his son. God has spoken to us chiefly through his son, Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king, the light of the world. The apostle John promised the true light, which gives light to everyone is coming into the world. So make no mistake, brothers and sisters, this word is fulfilled. The light has come. Look to him for life. Let's pray together. Oh. Lord, it's clear to me that so many would choose the darkness over the light. They're more comfortable grasping around in the darkness than stepping into the light. God, I pray that you would reveal your word to us. God, I pray you would make us a people full of conviction and of courage to proclaim the light of God's word into a very dark world. God, I pray that you would give us spiritual ears to hear that the good news has come in the person of Jesus and we can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. God, make us your emissaries in a dark world. It's not quiet anymore. We have your word. Help us to Proclaim it. Help us to believe it. Help us to live it. Oh, great light of the world, fill our hearts and our minds with truth. Convict us of sin. Lead us in the way everlasting. God, wake up your people. We need to see this story is not about us. It's all about you. Help us, Lord. Amen.